Good morning. My name is Eric Zeller. I'm one of the elders here, and it's a joy to be with you this morning. It's a joy to open God's word together in Romans chapter 6. Let's go to the Lord in prayer for our time as we go to his word. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can come before a God who is holy, 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 uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, by his death in our place, by his resurrection unto life in defeat of sin and defeat of death, that we can, because of Christ, be holy because you are holy. Father, what a gift of your grace you have given to your church, to your people. Father, let us understand that gift better today as we look at Romans chapter 6. Uh, Father, I know that myself and my brothers and sisters that are here, we come before you as those who need your help. We need your help, Father. We, we love you. We want to know you. We, we want to serve you. Um, but it does seem so difficult sometimes. It does seem like there are so many other things that we also want. There are so many other priorities that also intrude into our lives. And we just pray that, uh, that you'd work through your word this morning and clear some of those obstacles for us in our hearts and our minds. Um, decrease the desirability of sin for us. Increase the desirability of loving you and serving you and following you as those who have been brought from death to life. We pray that you would help us through your word, Father, as it's opened this morning. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would do it in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, I guess I'll begin with a confession. I really like zombies. Um, you know zombies, you know that genre. There's a lot of movies and TV shows that are out there on this topic. These days, you've got uh, these corpses that have come back to life, and it's really disgusting. And, uh, but, you know, they're, they're trying to take over the world, I guess. There's been a zombie apocalypse, and some kind of virus has gone out, and every, a lot of people got it. And there's a few people who are still alive, and they're trying to, like, fight for all the resources, but the zombies are trying to get them and they're trying to bite them and they're trying to make everybody else like zombies too. And so there's lots of, there's lots of drama that surrounds the zombies. And so, yeah, we've, we've got shows on that. We've got movies on that. And, and I watch them a little bit. Um, I don't have time to watch many movies, but I, I enjoy this kind. So like today or tomorrow, I'm going to get on an airplane and uh, have a little flight in front of me. And if there's a zombie movie, I might watch it. You know, so I, I like zombies. My family thinks that's really weird. You probably think it's really weird, but um, I'm just letting you know that's a kind of entertainment that I enjoy. I've heard in Dubai, there's a couple of places where you can go. Have any of you done this? You can get the, the VR goggles and you can put it on and you can have this zombie experience where you're like really fighting zombies and, you know, in your virtual world. I haven't done that yet. I guess that's kind of on my bucket list maybe for my birthday. We can, we can go do that. But, um, but I was thinking about zombies in relation to Romans chapter 6 in this series that we've been doing last week and then again this week because what Paul is, is speaking against in Romans chapter 6 is we, kind of we could call it a zombie Christianity, um, a Christianity where you're not fully dead, but you're not fully alive either, right? A Christianity where because we're, we're just so captive to sin because it seems like sin is being allowed to to rule in our lives, the result is that we're people who are moving around kind of like zombies, 
We, we have some semblance of life, but with the appearance and the fragrance of a corpse. But zombies, you know, they're not real. And zombie Christianity isn't real either. Because God didn't make us just kind of alive. God didn't make us just a little bit alive. God made us all the way alive. God made us really alive. That's what we saw last week. So he ended there in Romans 6.11 and said, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's where we, we were last week in Romans 6.11. And so as he goes from there, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We just go right on, and that's where we are this week in verse 12. He's continuing this exhortation, and, and he says this. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to, in order to make you obey its passions. See, that, that's the problem in the passage. The problem is that, that becoming a Christian, if you've become a Christian, if you've believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've been forgiven of sin, uh, guess what? That doesn't mean that the temptation to sin is removed. It doesn't mean that there was one day when suddenly, oh, like, sin is not of interest to me anymore, right? That's not, that's not our experience. The reality is that for Christians, sin is an ever-present threat. We have this, this shake sin that wants to be the ruler of our lives, and Paul's saying we need to oppose that. We need to fight that. Uh, I want to teach you a few big words this morning. You up for that? You guys like big words? Okay, so we're going to do three of them this morning. And the first one is mortification. Mortification. What does mortification mean? You know, some people use that word to, to mean something like embarrassed, but that doesn't mean embarrassed. Uh, it's an old Christian word. Mors is the Latin word for death. So we have morticians who take care of bodies after death. We talk about mortal wounds. We talk about uh, post-mortem examinations. And so to mortify, it's like the verb form of that. It means to make dead, to make something dead, to, to put it to death, to, to kill it. And the reason why we talk about mortification, why we need to know that word, is because at the heart of Reformed teaching about the Christian life, the life that all of us are now living, is this idea of mortification. That it's part of our call and part of our responsibility as believers to be about the business of mortification, of putting to death that sin that continues to dwell in us. The Puritan John Owen has uh, books on this topic. He wrote this. He said, be killing sin or it be killing you. Right? That's the heart of mortification. And so then the question of Romans 6 is, yeah, why wouldn't we keep mortifying sin? Why would we not want to put sin to death in our Christian lives? Why would we allow sin to reign? We saw last week this problem of grace. The problem of grace in verse 1 of the chapter, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Are we going to do that because we, we, because of this problem? And the problem is that abundance robs ambition. Abundance robs ambition. If we rightly see grace as abundant, that can lead to the problem of wrongly lacking the ambition for the ongoing mortification of sin. And so as we've gone through Romans 6, we, we, we've seen there's a solution. And Paul's solution has to do with our thinking, right? Paul, for Paul, right thinking 
leads to right actions. We're going to live right if we think right. And so he's trying to correct the thinking that we have to make us be thinking the way we should. And in verse 1 through 10, what we saw last week, this positive concept of what we should be thinking, he's talking about our identity, who we are in Christ, that we are united together with Christ, that we're united with Christ in his, his death and his resurrection, that we've died to sin, that we've been made alive in Christ. We saw that identity rules ambition The heart of having an ambition to combat sin is knowing who you are in Christ. That's the positive side in verse 1 through 10. But then now as we come into the second half of the chapter, we're going to see a negative side of the same issue because Paul wants us now to know what should we not think? What should we not believe when it comes to sin? He's opposing a certain perspective on sin. And the name for that teaching that Paul is opposing He doesn't use this word. This is the word given to it by theologians. And it's our second big word of the day. And that word is antinomianism. Antinomianism. Antinomian means anti-nomos. Nomos means law. It's against the law, literally against law. The teaching of antinomianism is this teaching that ultimately uh, the moral law of God doesn't matter. God's expectations, God's standards, God's call for you to do this and not do this. God's call for you to obey, to be holy, to be like him. Antinomianism says, yeah, for a Christian, hey, we're in Christ. We're in Christ. We have the blood of Jesus on our behalf. We have, we have grace. And so, so that's just, none of that really matters. Progressive growth into holiness, mortification of sin, it just doesn't matter very much. That's what antinomianism says. In the history of the church, that teaching has gone by a lot of different names. It it keeps coming back again and again and again and again. Some of the names are no lordship theology, free grace theology, hyper grace theology, sandymanianism. You don't need to remember all of those. But antinomianism is the one that, that tends to stick. It's been around even from the beginning. The biblical writers are aware of this problem. Uh, Jude says this in the book of Jude. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So he's saying that here's what ungodly people do. They take grace, grace is good, and they pervert it into sensuality. And it's an excuse for sin. They don't serve their master and Lord, Jesus. They claim grace, but choose sin. That's antinomianism. Theologian R.C. Sproul writes, every time the gospel is preached, the demon of antinomianism knocks at the door and says that if we are justified by faith, then works do not count. And if works do not count, then works do not matter. And so so we have this ancient teaching that's wrong, that's false, that Paul is opposing. Why are we talking about that? Why now in 2019 do we care about antinomianism? And the reason is because this teaching, this wrong teaching is alive and well today. It's there. It's present at the boundaries of evangelicalism. It comes into Christian writings and it comes into Christian conferences and it comes into Christian preaching, oftentimes totally unawares. And see, Paul seems to think that a key reason why we as Christians, because it comes into our lives too, He seems to think that a reason why we would have a hard time dealing with sin, a reason why we would not be mortifying sin as we ought, why we would be presenting our members to sin instead of to righteousness, Paul thinks that a reason for that is that we have misunderstood the gospel in such a way, 
as to allow antinomianism to come into our thinking. See, it doesn't mean that we've done it on purpose. It doesn't mean we set out to say, I want to be antinomian. It doesn't mean that, you know, someone told us to be antinomianism and we agreed to become that. We've maybe never even heard the word. But it means that maybe we've been taught badly, maybe we've been been taught well, but somehow at, at the edges of our perception of grace, this antinomian idea has come in. And ultimately the reason why is because antinomianism is what our sinful heart wants. We want antinomianism. We want to be free of rules. We, we want no one to tell us what to do. We, we want freedom as we define it. We don't want authority. We don't want rules. Antinomianism is what our heart wants. And that's why it keeps coming back into our lives. That's why it keeps coming back into our churches. And so Paul says, this is a danger. We've got to be vigilant against it. We've got to watch out for this danger of antinomianism. And so Paul wants us to watch out for that. And the way he's going to do that, what we want to see is that we want to see three lies of antinomianism. Three claims that antinomianism makes that are not true. So let's expose that so, so that we can be on guard against this danger in our own lives. The first lie of antinomianism is false grace. False grace. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. In, in verse 1, he began with a question, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? And then in verse 15, a very similar question comes, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Not under law, but under grace. See that contrast? We can be under law or we can be under grace. And the same contrast is made in verse 14. In that verse, he said, sin will have no dominion over you because you are not under law but under grace. And see, some people want to read this as if it's saying, like, they're going to interpret laws to mean something like rules. Like, oh, you're not under rules, but you're under grace. Grace means you don't have to keep rules. Grace means you can do what you want to do. Grace means you can live the way you want. You're not under these rules. You're under the grace. That's the way some people read those verses. Not under law, but under grace. But see, what we want to do instead is we want to let Scripture interpret Scripture and say, okay, what is it saying? What is it saying in verse 14 and verse 15 when it says that you're not under law, but instead you're under grace? And you realize he's made this contrast before. All throughout Romans 5 and then Romans 6, Paul is contrasting the old realm, the realm of Adam, being in Adam, being under the curse of Adam, having the inherited sin of Adam as compared to being in Christ. The realm of life, the realm of righteousness, the realm of hope. Paul's saying that if you're, if you're a Christian, you've gone out of this old realm, this old way of Adam. You've been in Christ. We saw that last week. And even as far back as chapter 5, he's saying this, this old age of Adam, it's the age of the law. You're under law. Law during the time of Adam, law is there, but law increases sin. That's the old system. The system in which law increases sin. So in chapter 5 at the end, he says this, the law came in to increase the trespass. That's where the law is. It's increasing trespass. It's exposing sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So law versus grace. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So in chapter 5, the contrast between law and grace is a contrast between an old time and a new time, the time of Adam versus the time of Christ. And so that's the same thing that he means in verse 14 and 15. It's not 
an ethical contrast. It's a theological and historical contrast. He's saying you once were this, and now you're this. And so that's why in verse 14, he can say, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. You see the hope in that verse? You see the hope in verse 14 that as we struggle with sin and as we, we do battle with sin, we can, we can do that with, with hope and with confidence knowing that sin's not in charge. Sin's not the boss. Sin, sin has no dominion over us. Why doesn't sin have dominion over us? Because we're in Christ. We're not under the law. We're in Christ. We're under grace. That's what Paul is saying in 614, being under grace, not under the law. What it means is that sin has no dominion over you. Grace means being free from sin. Grace means that sin is not the boss. But see, the, the, the antinomian impulse is the opposite of that. The antinomian inclination to say, but no, like grace, isn't grace a justification for sin? If I have grace, doesn't that mean that I can, I can continue to sin, that, that I don't need to mortify my sin, that I can just remember grace, that I don't need, we don't even need to talk about sin, right? Because that would be ungracious. Like we shouldn't confront sin in one another because grace, because grace, 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 grace is like, the magic, the magic word, like the, the code word that makes sin okay. Is that what it is? Paul says, no, that's false grace. That's false grace. Despite, you know, we, we call this sermon the problem of grace, but despite the title, there's no problem with grace. Grace is amazing. Grace is wonderful. We love grace. There's no problem with grace. The problem is with a misunderstanding of grace, with a perversion of grace, with false grace, right? With False grace. And so Paul's, the way Paul is defined being under grace in 6.14 and 6.15, he's saying that grace is the power to win the victory over sin. That's what it means. And so in verse 15, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Is being under grace the reason to sin? He says, by no means. May it never be the same answer that he gave in verse 2. Are we to continue in sin? By no means. Grace is not a reason to continue in sin. And now we've got to think more carefully about false grace. Because one of the arguments for antinomianism is that it's opposed to legalism, right? And that's good. That's a good thing about it. We, we're all opposed to legalism. Nobody is pro-legalism. What legalism means, legalism is a human attempt to perform good works in such a way that it earns merit with God. It earns favor with God. I'm, I'm doing works and God is giving favor to those works. That's what legalism is. And so antinomianism says legalism is bad. Legalism is a, is a danger and they're right about that. But what they're wrong about with antinomianism is they say, okay, let's, let's be so careful to avoid saying that works are adding merit to us that we're going to go all the way over here to the opposite extreme and say that works don't matter at all. That's the problem, saying that works don't matter at all. Because you might say, okay, well, um, listen, listen, preacher, you don't understand my, my context. You don't understand that I grew up in a church that was super legalistic. They were super moralistic, that every day, every week in, in the church that I grew up in, they're like preaching about 
how you shouldn't play cards and they're preaching about like whether you should, like how big your earrings can be or whether you should have them at all. Or they're preaching about like what hairstyle you should have. And, and, and they're preaching all these rules, all these man-made rules that have nothing to do with salvation. That, that's legalism and that's ugly and that confuses the gospel. And, and, and Paul says, you're right. But so someone says, okay, I came from this context. So, so when you start talking about obedience, and when you start talking about repentance, and when you start talking about mortification, it, it sounds too much like that. I'm not comfortable with it. I just want to hear about grace. I just want to hear about grace. But see, you got to understand Paul's context. Understand where Paul is coming from. Guess, guess what kind of context Paul came out of? It was a legalistic one. It was a legalistic one. Paul grew up as a Pharisee. He was trained as a Pharisee. Those are the guys that are like the kings of adding on the man-made rules of tithing the mint and the dill and the cumin and, and saying, okay, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. Paul knew about legalism. Paul hated legalism. Paul opposed legalism. He wrote Romans and he wrote Galatians. And, and, and a huge part of the message of those books is that we can't earn merit before God. Grace is free. Paul didn't like legalism. But see, this same Paul thought it was also essential not only to combat legalism, but also to combat antinomianism. Paul says that both legalism and antinomianism are dire threats to the people of God. See, that we need to be vigilant to oppose both of those dangers. Both the danger of adding works to salvation on the one side and the neglect of works in the Christian life on the other side. And we would do well to be gospel-centered enough to follow in Paul's example. Now, false grace, grace that gives a license to sin, this false grace, it wants to be encouraging. That's kind of the motivation for it is, is say, hey, we, we want to encourage people. We want to give people hope. And so false grace comes alongside and says, hey, Jesus accepts you just the way you are, and I do too. False grace comes alongside and, and, and it's very confused about any passage of scripture that talks about sin and talks about behavior and talks about things you ought not do. It says, oh, like that's a really confusing verse. There's a lot of different ways to understand it. Uh, you, let's just not worry about that for now because grace. False grace comes alongside and says, the problem isn't with your sin. The problem is really with the, the people who want to talk about your sin. And see, encouragement is good. I like encouragement. I want to be encouraged. You know, we all, we all enjoy encouragement. We want to feel happy as Christians. We want to feel hopeful in our spiritual status. We want to celebrate the grace and the victory that's ours in Christ. But when we insist on finding encouragement without the biblical process to attain that encouragement, when we want encouragement in our heart without dealing with the issues of our heart, when we feel encouraged in our sin without repenting, of that sin, at that point, the desire for encouragement has become an idol of encouragement. And that's false grace. Because false grace is going to come in, false grace is going to appeal to that idol of encouragement in our hearts, and it's going to offer a placebo. You know what a placebo is? That's like, you know, of course, in medicine, you have, uh, you have real pills, ones that have medicine in them that are fighting against, you know, their antibiotics or their, you know, whatever problem you have, the, the pill is going to help with that but then you've got placebo. Placebo looks like a pill. It, you know, it tastes like a pill, but it, there's no medicine in there. It's just fake. It's like powder. It's, I don't know, flour or, or something. It, but there's no medicine there. It's a fake pill. So they use placebos and pharmaceutical tests, and there's, there's different purposes for them, but the point of it is that a placebo is not treating the disease. It's not helping it get better. There's a psychological benefit 
If I'm sick and you give me a fake pill, I'm like, oh, I, I took the pill, I should feel better. And so maybe I do feel better for a little bit just because of the hopefulness of it. But it's not actually fixing me. It's not actually making me better. See, what false grace is offer, offering is, is, is placebo encouragement. It's, it's making you a little hopeful, but it's not helping you. And see, this is a danger in the church. It's a danger we, amongst ourselves. We need to watch out that we're not offering that kind of grace in a way that the Bible doesn't offer grace. But you know, it's so much worse when we get online in this day and age. You know, there's so many people that are out there, so many professing Christians with all kinds of, of different things going on because like, even if, you know, maybe you're going to start down this path of sin or that path of sin and in your local church, you're going to get some pushback. People are going to say, maybe you ought not be doing that. But guess what? You can get online and you can find people that are going to, you know, support you in anything. They'll say, oh, it's your parents don't understand. Your pastors don't understand. Those, those judgy people at your church don't understand. But we do. We do. So if you want to harbor bitterness towards your spouse, if you want to ignore your children, if you want to reject the teaching of your local church, if you want to live in open immorality, guess what? You can find some community of encouragers online that are going to say, oh, that's all right. We're Christians too. We, we feel the same way you do. And they're going to support you and encourage you in your sin unto your death. See, we need real grace. We need abundant grace. We need transforming grace. But antinomianism says, hey, take a little grace. Take some grace. But it's false grace. It's a placebo. And when you take fake medicine, you don't get better. So if we're going to resist the reign of sin, we need to be on guard against antinomianism. And so false grace is the first lie of antinomianism. But there's a second. Let's see the second. And that's false freedom. False freedom. We get to verse 16. Paul's going to start talking about slavery. Um, they, they knew about slavery, of course. You know, a person who's owned by another person, a person who has no choice but to do the will of, of, of that person who is their master. They're acting in total service to the master. It's been estimated that up to one-third of the total population of the Roman Empire were slaves. So slavery was common. They knew about slavery. It was out there. And actually, if you read all of Romans 6, the whole chapter really has to do with, with, with who's the boss, who's the master, who's the slave, who do you serve. Uh, all throughout the chapter, it's going back and forth on those issues. It's a dominant theme in the chapter. And so when it comes to slavery, here's, here's the antinomian argument. It's popular in Paul's day, popular now. The argument is mortifying sin makes you a slave. Mortifying sin makes you a slave. If you're going to talk a lot about sin, if you're going to fight against sin, if you're going to pursue holiness, that, that makes you a slave. Then, then you're enslaved to all those rules. You're enslaved to all these teachings of the church and of the Bible. And, and it makes you a slave. It, it takes away your freedom. And antinomianism is, is going to say, here's some freedom. You want freedom? We, we offer freedom. Wouldn't you like to be free? What would it be like to make your own choices, not to be in bondage to all that stuff? Let's, let, let's throw off authority. Let's shatter the patriarchy. Grace does that. Grace makes us free. But false grace offers a false freedom. Because look at Paul's response. The, the heart of it's right there in verse 16. Look at the middle of verse 16. Look what he says. You are slaves of the one you obey. He's saying this. He's saying everybody is a slave. Freedom is a myth. We're all slaves in some way. 
We're all slaves in one way or the other. The question isn't, should I be a slave or should I be free? The question is, whose slave am I? Paul's answer, what you do shows who you serve. What you do shows who you serve. The choices you make, who you are presenting yourself to, who you're making yourself available to, that is demonstrating who you are acting as the servant of. And so antinomianism is seeking freedom to be myself, freedom from the expectations of others, freedom from authority. And Paul says that's false freedom. That's really slavery. You think you're free, but you're a slave because you're really serving something. All the while, you're serving something. You're serving sinful desires. You're serving the passions of the flesh. You're serving the idolatry of self. You're serving the pressures of the culture. You're serving something all the while. What you think is freedom is not freedom. Real freedom is defined in verse 18. as having been set free from sin. Having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. He's saying, Christians, that's happened. That's happened in your life. You don't need to find some kind of new freedom. You don't need some kind of worldly freedom in Christ. You have true freedom. You've got it already. You've got freedom to serve God. You've got freedom to pursue righteousness. You've got freedom to walk in newness of life. True freedom isn't indulging sinful desires. True freedom is mortifying sinful desires. So look at the command in verse 19. It says, now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Basically the same command is in verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So, so you, want, you want the how-to. How do we go about this mortification? And it's this. It's, it, it's how are you presenting yourself? To whom are you presenting yourself? The members, of course, it means all the different parts of your body. This idea of presentation. It's a key idea five times in the chapter. It talks about present yourself. Where do you present yourself? And here's what he's saying. He's saying this mortal body you have now, right? We all got a body. We're all in the body now. You got a, a head, you got arms, legs, etc. You got, you, got, you got a body. He's saying this body with all its parts, it can be used for good or it can be used for evil. It can be used for righteousness or it can be used for unrighteousness. Now, um, I think some of you know my brother, my little brother, Pastor Scott. Anybody know him? Anyone? Like one person? Okay. That's good. So, so, so Pastor Scott, so, so, you know, we used to be little, now we're big, but uh, so we were kids and, um, and this thing happened where we were playing in the yard and, um, and front, the front of the house where we're, we're playing outside in the grass and in the house we lived in in that time, there's no walls between the different houses. So it's just like all of the fronts of the house are connected to each other. So other kids from other houses are out there playing and it's a sunny day and it's, it's so nice. And in the next house over, they were doing some work on, on the garden. And so there was some tools out there. And one of the tools that was there was a shovel, a big, you know, long-handed shovel, a normal shovel like you've seen before. And so the shovel is there. And, and hey, a shovel is a great tool, right? A shovel can be used for a lot of good purposes. You know, you use the shovel, you can dig a hole, you can, you can I, don't, I don't know what you do, you can plant some crops, you can build a house, you can dig a well, you know, whatever you need to dig, a shovel is good for that. It's, a, it's an invaluable tool for good. But in this case, the shovel was used for unrighteousness because 
here we are playing in the yard and some evil little kid, I can't exactly remember which kid it was. I think it was probably a neighbor, uh, maybe. But so some kid gets the shovel and they start swinging that shovel around with, you know, the, the, the business end down here. So they're swinging the shovel around and here's little Scott and he gets whacked in the back of the head, just drops down, blood pouring out everywhere, head, head split wide open. It was a mess. We had to staple him back together. But um, it was a happy ending. He survived. He grew up, became a pastor. Uh, it's, all, it's all pretty good. We're really thankful for whatever brain cells he has left, such as they are. And, um, and, and so happy ending. But, but, but see, that, that shovel, there was nothing wrong with the shovel. The problem was what it was used for. See? And Paul's saying, he's saying that all of your physical parts, your your hand, your feet, your tongue, your mind, your everything else. He's saying all of your abilities, all of your resources, they're all like that shovel. They're, they're tools. And it's possible to use those tools in the service of sin or of God. There's no third way. There's no neutral position. Nobody remains unaffiliated. You're serving the one or serving the other. He's saying what you do shows who you serve. The choices you make about your actions the, the, the action steps you take, that's showing who you serve. Who are you serving? See, right now, right now, in, in your mind, your mind is serving sinner, it's serving God. Later on today, say, say this evening, at, at dinner time, your, your hands are going to be serving God or sin. Tomorrow morning, maybe, maybe you'll be at, at work or you'll be at, uh, playing with friends, but, but tomorrow morning, you'll be serving sin or you'll be serving God, you're killing sin or you're serving sin. It's one or the other. Which, which direction are you moving? Which, which master are you serving? That's what Paul's asking. You notice in verse 19, another theological word. We've had a few of them. Here's, I think, the last one. Sanctification. Sanctification, look at 19. He says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. To sanctify means to make holy, to make holy, to, to make righteous, to make like God, to, to make increasingly far from sin, increasingly towards God, towards the character of God. That's the idea of sanctification. It's saying that, that believers ought to be moving towards sanctification. That's what he's, he's calling us to. And Paul's going to tell us, just in that phrase, three quick truths about the sanctification of Christians. Three observations we can make. He says, first of all, sanctification is the goal, right? It's the goal. We're, we're, we're aiming at sanctification. He, he's saying this is leading to sanctification. That's where we want to get. We want to get to sanctification, to, to holiness. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord, as it says in Hebrews. So it's the goal. Secondly, it's progressive. You see that progressive idea? In verse 19, it's not, okay, here's sanctification. You got it right now. But it's progressive. It's leading to sanctification. You're, you're on a road. You're walking down the road. And at the end of the road of sanctification, you, that, that's what you're striving toward little by little, step by step, progress by progress. But you don't get it all at once. You don't get it right away. It's a progressive sanctification. That's how he describes the Christian life. And then thirdly, this sanctification takes action. It takes you doing something. You have to act 
in sanctification. Sanctification is not passive. You don't just sit there and wait for sanctification to happen, but you take steps. You present your members. You actively serve God and not serve sin. One commentator, Doug Moo, wrote, the battle is a spiritual one, but it is fought and won or lost in the daily decisions the believer makes about how to use his body. You say, is that true? Is, is that what it, it's all about? Doesn't, doesn't God make us holy? Isn't that an act of God to make believers holy? Does that really have to do with us and have to do with our action? And you say, well, well think about a farmer. Think about a farmer. How, how does a farmer grow crops? Isn't God sovereign over, over wheat growing out of the earth and over corn growing over here? Isn't God sovereign in making rain fall and making crops grow? Isn't, isn't God sovereign in that? Yes, he is. Yes, God does make food grow out of the earth, as it says in Psalm 104. But tell you what, it's a foolish farmer who sits in bed and waits for that to happen. What a wise farmer does, the wise farmer gets out there and he, he acts, he takes the steps that are going to lead to the cultivation of that food because he knows that God is sovereign over the growing of food, but he knows that God works through the means of the farmer's labor to get there, see? And a wise Christian is the, like a wise farmer, that he trusts in God's sovereignty. He knows that God is the one who is changing me, that God is making me holy, but the, way, the means by which he is going to do that is not my inaction, but by my action, by my taking active steps to present my members towards God, towards righteousness, and not towards sin. Later on, Paul says in verse, chapter 13, verse 14, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, to gratify its desires. He's saying that's the path to true freedom. That's true freedom. We don't need false freedom. We need true freedom. He says that's where it is. It's in fighting with sin, of indwelling sin. John Owen writes, he says, it will not otherwise die except by being gradually and constantly weakened. Spare it, and it heals its wounds, and it recovers strength. We don't want sin to recover strength. We want sin to keep getting weaker. We want sin to die We've got to fight against it. That's true freedom. See, the antinomian Christian says, hey, I'm free, and all you're talking about holiness, sin, you're a judgmental legalist. And Paul says, what you do shows who you serve. So who are you serving, Redeemer Church? Who are you, who are you serving? What does your actions reveal about who you are truly the servant of? See, we're all tempted towards antinomianism. That, that impulse is in all of our hearts, as we said. But we've seen in the passage that antinomianism lies because it promises you a false grace. A false grace, it, it peddles a false freedom. But Paul's going to end with the biggest lie of all, which is that antinomianism ultimately offers false life. False life because he's been talking about presenting your members as slaves to righteousness. It leads to sanctification. The goal is sanctification. And so because he started to think about these end goals, Paul is going to make that his last challenge. He's going to say, okay, there's two ways you can live right now. There's the way of presenting yourself to sin or the way of presenting yourself to God. The way of unrighteousness or of righteousness. He, he comes back to that. He repeats that a few times. And he's saying, okay, let, let's compare those two ways in terms of the finish line. Where are those two ways going? It's kind of like Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. We had a sermon a few weeks ago on that. There's, there's two different ways. Where are they going? Where are they going to end up? That's what he's asking. He said, well, when it comes to being a slave to sin, what's the end of that? 
But he's saying, well, I think you know. I think you know, right? Because we've all tried it. We've all tried it. At some, at some point, we, we've tried that path of just yielding to sin, of letting sin have its way, of, uh, of being people who don't say no to sin. We, we've all had that time in our lives where we, we acted as slaves to sin. Jesus says in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Right? We've all been there. We've all been slaves to sin. And Paul challenges us here. He, he makes us think about that in verse 21. He wants to say, hey, what was, what was the fruit you were getting from that? Do you remember? Do you look back on that time of being a slave to sin? Do you remember a lot of benefits? Do you remember all this good stuff that happened to you because, of, because you were in bondage to sin? Is that what you remember when you look back? Paul says, no. That's not what you remember. I think when you look back on being a slave to sin, what you, what you see is shame. What you see is shame. He says, what fruit were you getting at that time from those things of which you're now ashamed? That's what sin brings. It leads to shame. It leads to Regret, that's, that, that's the false freedom. It's shame and regret. That's the end. He's saying, remember that. Remember that, that you made that choice to turn away from that sin because he's saying, you've chosen a different way now, haven't you? Haven't you chosen a different way? Haven't you started down a different path? Remember who you are in Christ? Remember that, that your old self was crucified with him on the cross? Remember that? And so look in verse 22. It says that now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, that's where you are now, church. You've been set free from sin. You're slaves of God. So what's the result of that? What's the end of that road? And he says, look what he says. Verse 22, it's It's sanctification. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. Being a slave of God leads you to sanctification. And then where does that lead? Where that leads is eternal life. Eternal life. So he's saying that, that as you, you go down this road of the Christian life, as you are progressively, gradually sanctified, as you are being transformed into the image of the one who created you, as you are becoming holy as he is holy, as you're walking in the light because he is in the light, as you're letting that light so shine that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven, as that's happening, what that's doing is that's leading you down the road that leads to eternal life, life with Christ. That's the end of that road. And now, having seen that, we can understand the most famous verse in the chapter, which is the last one, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's kind of a summary of the whole chapter. He's saying that death is the starting point. We were in Adam. We were in the old man. As such, we belong to death, and we were, we, we were enslaved to death. But God intervened. God gave this gift. God gave this, this free gift. The word gift there, it actually is a derivative of the word grace. It's like God gave this, this gift of grace. And he's saying, what does this grace gift mean? Shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? May it, may it never be by no means. Because if the eternal life of verse 23 is the same eternal life as in verse 22 then what that means is that the way that somebody obtains this eternal life is at the end of that long road of sanctification as slaves of God. And if that's true, then the free gift of heaven, what is it, this free gift of eternal life? Well, what it's not is it's not a, like, get to heaven free pass. 
It's not a golden ticket that you get at one point in your life and it doesn't matter what happens after that because this thing happened and that means that you got grace, you got the free gift and like regardless of the rest of your life, you're going to heaven. That's not the free gift that Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about a free gift in the context of verse 22 that includes this grace and includes the grace that crucifies the old self with him. The grace that raises you to life with him. The grace that, that lets you keep presenting yourself to God as one who has been brought from death to life. It's the grace that leads to sanctification. The grace that leads to eternal life. And if that's true, then the, the gift, the free gift offered by antinomianism isn't a gift at all because their life isn't life. In 8.13, Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Free gift of eternal life, you will live. One of the great engineering achievements in history is the building of the Panama Canal, right around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, you know, you've got North America, you've got South America, they're both huge continents, and, and back in the day, the, the only way you could get from, kind of get around that from one side of the world to the other, or even from one side of the United States to the other, is you had to go all the way around, down around Cape Horn, and this, this treacherous journey that many died on, this huge long way, and then you had to go back up the other side. But then someone had the bright idea, what if we dig a canal right there in the middle, two huge continents, but right in the middle, we've got this narrow little area of Panama, just 80 kilometers across. If we just cut a canal, then the ships can go right through there and it, it makes the journey 100 times shorter or a lot shorter. And so they can just go through there. That's the idea. And so they said, okay, who's the best canal digger in the world? And they found this, this French guy who had just dug the Suez Canal, and so he knew a thing or two about canals. And so the, the, so the French got to Panama, and they, this is around 1880, and they bring hundreds of thousands of men. They bring vast amounts of money, vast amounts of equipment. It's, it's like this massive, massive operation. They spend 20 years trying to dig this canal, and guess what? It's a total failure. It's a total failure. Do you know why it failed? There were a lot of issues. There are issues of plans, issues of strategy, but the main issue was disease. Disease, because what happened is in the jungles of Panama, these canal diggers were so oppressed by disease, by yellow fever, by cholera, by malaria, that the work couldn't get done. They're just laid up all the time. 22,000 workers died of disease during this period. And so then, the, so the French ultimately said, we can't do it. They pulled out. A few years later, it's just kind of sitting there and uh, the U.S. gets involved. The U.S. takes over. They, they, again, they start pouring money into it. They start bringing workers down. Same problem. People are just dying. Disease is happening. It's just, it's, this jungle is impenetrable in Panama. But finally, what happens is this, this, this doctor comes and kind of takes over the medical wing of the operation. His name uh, was Gorgas, Dr. William Gorgas. And so he studied, you know, he's trying to figure out why are people getting so sick? What's going on? He figured out, here's what it is. It's the mosquitoes. It's these little mosquitoes. The mosquitoes are going around. They're carrying disease and they're infecting everybody. And of course, now we're like, yeah, we know that. But they didn't know that back then. He's the guy that figured it out. And so he's saying the mosquitoes are carrying all this disease. And so the solution to the disease is going to be fighting against these mosquitoes. And he tried a few things and he realized pretty quickly, he realized, okay, just swatting mosquitoes, that's not getting it done. 
uh, just you know, kind of tr- giving people medicine that have the, the sickness. That's not getting it done. What we've got to do is got to go to war against these mosquitoes. We've got to get rid of their breeding grounds, make it impossible for them to reproduce. And so he tells the government, I need $10 million, which is a huge amount of money at that time. And I needed thousands of men. And he got all that. They gave him what he needed. And he went to every single building in all of Panama. And he, and he divided all up into districts. He went to every single building and looked for every possible place that mosquitoes could breed. And he said, we're getting rid of it. We're destroying all standing water. We're, we're making holes. You know, we're, we're doing whatever it takes. We've got construction teams. We're doing what it takes to make it impossible for mosquitoes to reproduce in this country. And guess what? It worked. Two years later, the disease had gone way down. The canal got finished and it still exists today. And that's still how they treat mosquitoes today. This man was a medical pioneer. And see, when, when, as we look at Romans 6, and we've been through this chapter, seeing all this telling us about, about sin, about the indwelling sin in our life. Listen, life as a Christian is hard. It's not easy to follow Christ. We, we're, all, we're all tempted. It, you know, the, the solutions that Paul's offering are not solutions of let's just snap our fingers and say it's done. But he's saying what we can't do, we can't act like it's not an issue. We can't act like these mosquitoes that are buzzing around our head are just little mosquitoes and there's not a big deal. We can't act like, oh, if we just do a few little things, if we just, you know, put up a little net, if we just, you know, slap them a little bit, we can't, act, we can't take these partial measures that don't get to the real issues. He's saying, no, we, we've got to figure out what's really going on here. We've got to get at the heart issue. What are the, the thinking patterns that are leading us to sin? What are, what, what are you worshiping? What are you striving after? What are, what are you longing for? What, what, what's deep in your heart that's causing you to struggle with sin in the way that you do? Paul's saying, we've got to get down there. We've got to get down to that source. We've got to declare war on that source of sin, just like they did with the mosquitoes. He's saying, we've got to put the resources in there. We've got to do whatever it takes to get to the root of that problem and to kill it, to put it to death, to mortify it. He's saying, that's the life of a Christian. That's the message of Romans 6. It's not saying grace is here, so let's let the mosquitoes buzz. He's saying grace is here, and it's that grace that's going to enable us to fight the battle that God calls us to fight. Redeemer, I long for us to be a church that loves the gospel. I long for us to be a church that, that celebrates the abundance of grace and the gospel, and so I long for us to be a church that does not let sin reign in our mortal bodies to make us obey its passions. Let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Romans chapter 6. Thank you for this clarion call for us to make war on sin, not to use grace as an excuse, but to put to death the sin that is in our lives. Father, the struggle is difficult. It lasts for as long as we are alive. Father, may we wage war with your strength and with our eyes focused on Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.